You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. So glad that you're here with us. Um, that being said, if you have a Bible, grab it and turn with me to Psalm chapter 1 as we continue in our series that we kicked off last week, which we have titled Resilience. And if you weren't here last week or you were and you forgot, um, we, we defined last week resilient as the ability to withstand or recover quickly from difficult conditions. Um, and so with that definition on the screen, our vision behind this series is that if you've been alive very long, um, you're very aware that you're going to face some pretty extreme, harsh conditions in this life. Troubles, trials, tribulations, temptations, all of which can make it very difficult to follow Jesus. Um, on top of that, right now, we're facing really some pretty harsh um, conditions on a societal level. You've got a global pandemic, massive political divide, riots and racism, breakdown of family and marriage, the rise of addiction. I could go on and on and on. And so um, our heart in this series is more than ever before, we long to see God raise up resilient disciples, disciples of Jesus who not only uh, survive in these conditions, but actually thrive in these conditions and grow and flourish. To that end, what we're doing is each week in this series, we're just p- taking a particular uh, topic and practice, like a value and a practice that we believe Jesus has called you and your family and we as a crossing family to um, embody in our lives so that we can become resilient disciples. And today we're going to be looking at Psalm 1. And as always, if you have the Version Bible app, all the notes from today's teachings are there. So you can follow along with me if you would like. And uh, what I'd love to do before we dive into this text is I'd love just to pray one more time. So would you just join me in that? Let's go before the Father and let's just ask for his grace and his help on everything that we do here this morning. So let's pray together. Father, I um, just echo Robert's prayer and agree with it. Thank you for his prayer. I I pray that just as I've been doing all week and, and for my own heart, that you would soften it. Lord, would you soften the hearts of everyone here, everyone who will hear this teaching, open the eyes of our hearts, and I just pray that your word which is living and active and sharper than any uh, two-edged sword, would pierce us this morning and heal us and restore and redeem and bind us up and snap us back into reality. And um, I just pray that your word would have its way with us. and You would humble us before you and bring us into a, a life-changing encounter with Jesus. Help us to radically reorient all of our lives around him. That is what your word is calling and telling us to do. So give us the grace that we need to hear it and obey it. And I ask these things in Christ's name and for his glory and our joy. Amen. Well, William Tyndale, I think we can show you a picture of him. There he is, William, uh, was one of the most significant church leaders we have ever known, especially in the Western world. And if you're not familiar with Tyndale, Um, He was a linguist and a professor at Cambridge University. He was fluent in eight languages, and he devoted most of his life's work to reading, translating, and studying the Bible in its original languages of Greek and Hebrew. 
And as he did that, um, the more he studied, the more he uh, dug into the text of the Word of God, the more something began to burn and transform inside William Tyndale. And he became convinced of two fundamental uh, conclusions, two things he became convinced of, things which we take for granted in our day and age, but were very radical ideas in his day and age. The first thing Tyndale became convinced, the more he gave his life to studying the scriptures, is that the Bible, not the Pope, should be the ultimate source of spiritual authority for disciples of Jesus. Very radical idea in Tyndale's age, radical enough to get you killed. The second uh, conclusion he drew and became convinced of is that every disciple of Jesus has the right and every disciple of Jesus must have the ability to read the Bible in his or her own native language. Now, that's kind of a no-brainer for us because we live on this side of Tyndale, on this side of what uh, has become known as the Reformation, where I'm assuming most, if not everyone, has a copy of the Bible in English. Um, if, if you don't have one, I'd love to know that. We'll get you one. But, but I would guess probably most of you have multiple copies with different like covers and there's all kinds of apps and stuff on your phone that will even read it to you. My point is, in our day and age, the Bible available to us in English is, is everywhere. It's very accessible. What you have to realize in Tyndale's day and age is that it was actually illegal to have your own copy of the Bible and to have a copy of it in English. There was a law passed in 1408 in England that was written to, res- to uh, restrict the translation of the Bible from Latin, which is what the Catholic Church used and only educated priests could read, into English so that everyday disciples of Jesus like you and I can read it. And so what that means is that if you're a Christian in England, nobody can read the Bible for themselves. And Tyndale believed this was a problem, and he believed God was calling him to do something about it. So... He flees to Germany because in Germany there's this uh, German Reformation that's already kind of taken place around some of this stuff under a leader known as uh, named Martin Luther. And so while he was in Germany, uh, we believe like Luther was actually hiding him. And so while he was there, uh, Tyndale goes to work and he translates the first ever English version of the Bible, first ever English Bible to exist. What Tyndale does then is he sends people from Germany across the English Channel into England to smuggle 18,000 of these Bibles into England. And it's, it's really beautiful. You can read all about it in church history, how disciples of Jesus um, were gathering secret gatherings in homes. And they were reading the Bible at a whisper. And revival was starting to break out because men and women and children were hearing the words of God for the first time ever in their own language. It was amazing. Um, all they'd ever known before that was the Catholic Mass, which again is all in Latin. So just imagine that, not being able to read the Bible and hear the words of God God from the scriptures in English. So um, now, as the story goes on, when Henry VIII finds out about this, he's furious. He uh, manages to confiscate 6,000 copies of Tyndale's Bible, and um, he bur- has them burned on the steps, front steps of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. So imagine with me Bibles being burned on the front steps of a church building. That's how far gone things were in, in the culture at that time. Then Henry, sweet Henry, goes on to pass a new law saying that all of Tyndale's Bibles were to be destroyed. And anyone found with one of Tyndale's Bibles was uh, like, if, if you find anybody, um, it's death upon contact. Like it's an immediate death sentence. Anybody that has a copy of his Bible is put to death. Then he sends a spy over to Germany to go over and find Tyndale and, and befriend him and ask him, would you disciple me and be my friend only to betray him? And that's what happens. 
Tyndale falls for the ploy. So this guy goes over, befriends him, betrays him. Tyndale is arrested. He is sent uh, back over from Germany to England where he is kept in prison and tortured for a year. And after refusing to recant, Tyndale is brought to the town square where he is bound by rope and chain and he's burned at the stake. Um, Historians report that his last words were a prayer. He prayed, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And God actually answered that prayer, um, not in a way that he saved Henry, but in a way that, for whatever reason, the king had a change of heart, and he changes the law years later and allows the Bible to be translated into English for all to read. However, that was not before several other church leaders lost their lives trying to continue Tyndale's mission. And I could give you name after name, but just, just to give you a few, these are worth mentioning because these are men that gave their life for this. So Hugh Latimer was the Bishop of Worcester. Nicholas Ridley was the Bishop of London. Thomas Kramer was the Archbishop of Canterbury. All burned at the stake because of their efforts at making the Bible accessible to every disciple and really every person in England. Now, as I engage with this piece of history... Um, all of this raises a question for me and hopefully for you. And the question is, what, this is the question I want us to ponder this morning. What is it about the Bible that men and women throughout church history are willing to reorient their entire lives and suffer and die just to make it available to us so that we could read it? Put it another way, what, what is it about the Bible that these guys would give their life just to give you a copy Like you realize if you have a Bible in English, a copy on your phone or in your lap, it's a direct result of these guys' sacrifices. So the question is, why would they do that? Great question. Here's the answer. (laughs) The the reason why these men were willing to, to die for this is because they understood full well and they were fully convinced that in the corrosive soil of their culture, disciples of Jesus wouldn't stand a chance if their lives weren't firmly rooted in Scripture. Like, they knew that the church would not survive the pull of culture unless every disciple had their personal life anchored to and shaped by what God says, not by what the culture says. And so they're willing to give everything up for this because they know disciples of Jesus don't stand a chance in that culture if their lives aren't rooted in the Scriptures. Now, the reason why I share that with you is because if we don't think the same is true for us, we are fooling ourselves this morning. Uh, Paul Miller is right when he says contemporary America, American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to follow Jesus. If you look at other places in the world, especially places where it's illegal to follow Jesus and Christians are being persecuted, what's amazing is you see the church booming and growing, and yet every year the American church is declining. And people have been writing about this a lot in the last 20 years. Two important articles were released last year, pre-COVID-19. Gallup released an article, put it on the screen, titled U.S. Church Membership Down Sharply in Past Two Decades. And then the Pew Research Center published an article titled, In U.S., Decline of Christianity Continues at a Rapid Pace, Rapid Pace. Both articles go on to say that roughly 43 to 48% of U.S. adults say they are somewhat affiliated with a church, and that's down 20% from 20 years ago, where it was 63 to 68% of U.S. adults would say, yeah, I'm affiliated with a church. Now, probably the best research on this comes from David Kinnaman in his book, Faith for Exiles. 
Kinnaman is uh, the president of Barna Research, and in his book, he looks at 18 to 29-year-olds today who grew up in the church and at least at one point in their life claimed to follow Jesus. And of that age group, here's what he says. 22, put it on the screen, 22% no longer identify as Christian and have completely left the faith and the church. 30% still identify as Christian if you ask them, but are not plugged into a church and basically never attend a church service. 38% still identify as Christian, but only attend a church service maybe once a month. And get this, they don't hold to core beliefs or practices associated with being an intentional, engaged disciple. What that means is they don't read their Bible and pray. Um, they're not involved in any kind of small group or missional community. Um, their, their views and what they believe about truth and sexuality and politics and ethics and all of that is shaped more by what the culture says than by what the Bible says. And then finally, he comes to this last category. 10% are what he calls resilient disciples. These are those who attend church regularly and engage with the church uh, more than just attending worship services. Um, They trust firmly in the authority of the Bible, committed to Jesus personally, and affirm he was crucified and raised from the dead to conquer sin and death. And, get this, they express desires to transform the broader society as an outcome of their faith. So out of all 18 to 29-year-olds who grew up in the church, what Kinnaman says is that right now only 10% are resilient disciples. That's a decline in the American church. So only 10% are um, actively dedicating, daily dedicating their life to following Jesus. And if you're a young person in this room, like, I, I just want to beg you just to be aware of that trend. And I just want to beg you to be aware that there are all sorts of things in our society and our culture that are conspiring against your faith. Like, there are isms and ideologies and stories and opportunities, all of which exist and are designed to conspire against you and pull you further and further away from Jesus. And like you have an invitation right now to, to, to decide, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a resilient disciple. Like, I'm going to daily, de- and it's a daily thing, by the way. It's not like something you do at church camp or something you do in a Sunday service. It's like, I've decided to follow Jesus. But to daily anchor your life in his word and daily choose to follow him. That's our prayer for you. That's our prayer for all of us. And this is the reality. This is the trend. This is where we are right now. Um, again, this is all pre-COVID-19. Kinnaman and Barna have released another article just last month in light of the coronavirus, and it's an article that's titled, One in Three Practicing Christians Has Stopped Attending Church During COVID-19. What that means is that one in three uh, people who identify as Christians uh, are not not streaming their online service, um, not connecting with their small group or missional community, totally disconnected from the church. And here, here's what all this research is getting at, okay? Listen, there is just something unique about the, the cultural waters that we swim in. There, there, is, there is something about the soil of a secular, progressive, post-Christian, individualistic, consumeristic society like ours, listen, that is particularly corrosive to faith in Jesus. Let me say it more clearly than that. It's really hard for faith in Jesus to grow here. Add to that a global pandemic and a world that seems to be on fire and you have the perfect conditions for your faith being rocked. 
Like your faith being tested and deconstructed and the perfect conditions for you to build new habits that pull you away from God, that keep you disconnected from the church, from God, from his body, and from his mission. And so in light of all that, all that being said, I think the the question we have to ask ourselves is, how in the world in this cultural soil, in this cultural moment, how do I become a resilient disciple of Jesus who flourishes and doesn't fall away? And to that end, here's the big idea I just want to put on the table and have us wrestle with this morning. You can't be that if your life's not rooted in Scripture. You you can't be a resilient disciple apart from a life rooted in Scripture. That's the foundation. In fact, everything we're going to talk about over the next several weeks in this series, every value, every practice, everything we do as a church, it's all rooted in Scripture. So if your life is not rooted in Scripture, then like all these practices and values are not going to take root in your life and last. It all comes back to the key to flourishing as disciples of Jesus in this world is having your whole being soaked and saturated in the scriptures. That being said, look with me at Psalm chapter 1. Psalmist says it way better than me. So Psalm chapter 1 has been called the gateway into the scriptures. Like everything the Bible is trying to say to you is kind of found in Psalm 1. So here we go. Psalm 1 verse 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of th- that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. So right here, the psalmist has given us a vision of a tree that is flourishing. And it's an image that's kind of lost on us because we just kind of look around at us and we don't realize that when this was written, it's written by a poet in the Middle East in the desert where water is a precious commodity and trees are a rare find. If there were any trees, most didn't survive because they could not survive the harsh conditions, right? And so yet in the middle of all that, you see this tree, this tree that is flourishing and it's and it's bearing fruit and it's giving life because unlike other trees the roots of this trees are saturated in the constant flow of living water and the point of this metaphor could not be more clear more simple more powerful it's simply this the one who roots himself in scripture is like the tree rooted in streams of water He's really not talking about a flourishing tree. That's a metaphor. He's talking about a flourishing life. Who's the one who flourishes? Well, he says it really clearly. The one who flourishes is the one who delights, who loves, who meditates day and night in the law of the Lord. And, and you've got to get this to understand this. When, he's, when he talks about law, that's what they called their Bible. So he's not talking about the Ten Commandments or other weird laws that you get in the, in the Old Testament. He's talking about the story of Scripture, the Bible, and his, his whole point is really simple. When you love and you saturate your life in Scripture, you will be like this tree. What is this tree like? Well, we'll put it on the screen. He says in verse 1, blessed. You'll be blessed, which is literally the word happy. So um, in the words of Bob Ross, this is a happy little tree, right? It's a happy tree. So you'll be happy like this tree. 
And um, and this, this is where we get the word beatitude. So Jesus in the beatitudes, when he's like, blessed are those who are poor in spirit and so on and so forth. Scholars believe that Jesus is just meditating on Psalm 1 when he teaches the beatitudes. And you can sum up everything he's trying to say like this. Happy is the one who roots his life in scripture. This is the way to be happy. So if you build your life on the Bible, you'll be happy. You'll be blessed. Also like this tree, you will bear fruit, not for yourself, but but for others. Your leaves will never wither. In other words, you'll be resilient. You won't crack or be destroyed when the heat comes or the storms come, and they're coming. They're coming. Um, you'll, you'll stay green and vibrant and full of life and beauty. And then he says in the last line of verse 3, whatever you do will prosper. He's not talking about financial prosperity or worldly success here. He's talking about, get this, he's painting a picture of a life that is prospering and flourishing in the desert. In the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of pain and loss and suffering and trials and temptations, this is a life that is marked by joy and peace. A life where your relationships with God and others are marked by love. I mean, the question is, who doesn't want that? I mean, whether, whether, you, like, whether you agree with the Bible or want the Bible or not, like you want the Psalm 1 life. Everybody wants the Psalm 1 life. I love what Dallas Willard says about the Psalm 1 life. Um, Willard says it better than me. Here's what he says. The Psalm 1 man or woman delights in the Word of God. He loves it, is thrilled by it, can't keep his mind off of it. He thinks it is beautiful, strong, wise, an incredible gift of God's mercy and grace. He therefore dwells upon it day and night, turning over and over in his mind and speaking it to himself. He does not do this to please God, but because the law pleases him. Get this. It is where his whole being is oriented. His whole life is anchored in it. And what's the result? The result is a flourishing life, Willard says. I also can't read Psalm 1 without reading you Eugene Peterson's paraphrase in the message. It's just so beautiful. He says, Happy is the one who thrills in God's word, who chews on scripture day and night. You're a tree planted in Eden. That's who you are. Bearing fresh fruit every month, never dropping a leaf, always in blossom. How beautiful is that? And at the risk of over-repeating myself, what the psalmist, what Willard, what Peterson are saying to us is the key to being a resilient disciple is having your life rooted in Scripture. Now, elephant in the room for most of us. More than ever before, most who identify as Christian in our culture aren't reading the Bible. Did you know that? Most of us are not reading it. Um, in that sense, we're actually closer to 15th, 16th century England than we realize, except the reason we're not reading the Bible is not because it's illegal to have a copy of it. Most of us are just not reading it. Every year, the Bible sells something like 25 million copies. It's the best-selling book of all time, but church leaders today have called it the best-selling book never read. And so why don't we read this, especially if we know that like rooting our life in it is, is the key to being a resilient, flourishing disciple? Well, there's a lot of reasons why I think we don't read it. Um, you know, maybe you know, some of us don't read it because it's boring. <laughs> and it is sometimes. I mean, I think it's okay to be honest about that. It's a story, and not all parts of a story are equally as interesting. Every part matters. Every part of the story matters, but not every part is equally as interesting. And so maybe for some of you, it's like, I don't read it because it's boring. 
or because it's hard to understand. I'll be the first to admit that. It's, it is hard to understand. It's also maybe has something to do with the fact that it's just hard for the Bible to compete with an iPhone and a smart TV and our um, obsession with work and our addiction to hurry. Or maybe for some of you here in the room, you don't read the Bible simply because you take issue with it. And if that's you, by the way, we're so glad you're here. This is such a safe place for you to bring all your doubts and questions and pushbacks and challenges and wrestle like we love it. We're all about that here. But I think if we're honest, a lot of us don't read it because we, we take issue with it. You know, maybe you don't like what the Bible says about truth or sex or gender or, you know, money or marriage or how to treat your enemies. Those teachings of Jesus are radically at odd with, with what our culture says today. And I think what this really boils down to is that um, to some extent we all struggle to read the Bible because none of us want to accept the Bible as authoritative for our lives. And if I'm honest, I put myself in that category too. often don't want to accept the Bible as authoritative for my life. Charles Taylor um, is a sociologist, and he says that we've moved over the last 500 years from being a culture of authority to a culture of authenticity. So 500 years ago, everybody, you would have rooted your life in the authority of the Bible, what your parents say, and what the elders in the community say. Fast forward now, 500 years later, and um, we've moved into this culture of authenticity where it's all about be true to yourself and follow your heart and don't let anybody tell you what to do. And as, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, do whatever you want. And, and, and we, just have to, we just have to come to grips with the fact that this has seeped into us. I mean, go, go read Barna's State of the Bible. Every year they, they publish a State of the Bible. Go read their one from 2019. This is just what they say in that summary is that, that, that more and more in our culture, more and more, the idea of rooting your life in the authority of, of an ancient collection of writings inspired by God is just borderline absurd to the majority of people in our culture. And if you're a Christian, or at least you identify as a Christian, though you would never say that out loud, if we're honest, functionally, many of us live that way. I mean, we're, we're, we're mad and we're upset that, that, you know, we've taken the Bible out of schools, and yet functionally most of us have taken the Bible out of our lives. It's just where we are. And I think A.J. Sherrill, who's a pastor and writer, sums up the problem best. It's a little bit lengthy, but worth the read. Here's what he says. Neglected, dusty, and crisp are three characteristics that describe the average Christian's Bible that sits motionless from the bookshelf in many American homes. It often rests just low enough on the shelf to be noticed, yet remains high enough to go untouched. Recent estimates purport 3.9 billion Bibles have been purchased over the past 50 years, but there's a vast difference between best-selling and most read. Much has been written on the topic of biblical illiteracy within the 21st century post-Christian society. Pastors are scrambling to motivate their congregations, while theologians are bewildered by the Bible's neglect. In contrast to many recent voices, perhaps the problem is not that Christians do not know how to read Scripture. It is much more foundational than that. Instead, the vision for what the Bible is and why the text even matters is lost on us. It's become buried on us. So Cheryl argues the main reason why we don't read the Bible is because, honestly, we've lost the vision for what the Bible is and why it even matters. And I think he's probably right. I think he's probably right. So that being said, here's what I want to do in the time we have left. Uh, In light of 
um, kind of where we are in our whole society and our relationship to the Bible, even within the church, here's what I want to do. I just want to ask three simple questions, and these are three things that we have to get in order to have our lives rooted in the Scripture. And this may feel a little more like a lecture, a little more teachy as we move through this, but I think that kind of just is the nature of this topic, okay? So three questions we have to ask. Number one, what is the Bible? Number two, why should we read it? And number three, how do we read it? And I just want to say a brief word on each of these and then we'll be done. So first off, if you're taking notes, what exactly is the Bible anyway? Great question. Um, To help us answer that, let's look to Jesus, okay? Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. We'll put it on the screen for you. Here's what he says. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but what? To fulfill them. For truly, it's a very important word. I would underline that word. Um, So, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Go back to that word, fulfill, and just fix your eyes on it for a moment. Jesus reads, here's what that word's telling you. Jesus reads the Old Testament and the New Testament writings as a story in search of an ending. That's important. As a story in search of an ending, in in search of a fulfillment. And then he says, I'm the fulfillment of that story. I'm the climax to the plot of that story. Therefore, what is the Bible? Well, here's a good definition that we could take from Jesus. Jesus believed the Bible to be a library of writings that are both divine and human, that together tell a unified story which leads us to Jesus. And I said this in the last service, I'll say it again, like, you have no idea the discipline it takes for me not to go crazy unpacking every detail of that definition. Like, I want to talk all about how the, the Bible is not a book, it's a library of writings with all kinds of genres of, like, you know, poetry and, and letters and apocalyptic literature and census uh, information and, like, narrative and all this kind of stuff, and how the Bible is, is, is both human and divine in its nature. It's amazing how God inspired human beings to write down Scripture, and he did it in a way where he, he used their personalities and their potential and their limitations even to do it. Like, listen, if you've, if you've got questions about all that kind of stuff, I, would, I will annoy you to death. I would love to. Give me the, just give me the chance. Like, if you want to talk about manuscript evidence or you want to talk about like, theories of inspiration or how to read different genres, like, let's do it, baby. Like, I'll, I'll go there with you. But for the sake of time, I can't do that now. So the main thing I want to focus on is the last section of that definition. And it's this, this right here. Jesus really did believe that all the different genres and every teaching and every section of the Bible is all working together to tell one unified story that is designed to lead you into a life-transforming relationship with him self. That's what the Bible is. And if you miss this, that it's a story leading you to Jesus, you'll miss everything. The Bible's been so abused and misused and pulled out of context to support all kinds of vile and violent things throughout human history. It's because we miss this. You miss this, you miss everything. Tim Keller, I think he says it really well. He says, The reason for our confusion over the Bible is that we usually read the Bible as a series of disconnected stories, each with a moral for how we should live our lives. It is not. I love how simple it it is not that. Rather, it comprises a single story telling us how the human race got into its present condition and how God, through Jesus Christ, has come and will come to put things right. 
That's what the Bible is. And what Keller's saying is that when you, when you read the Bible like a collection of moral tales, like Jonah and the whale or David and Goliath, and you make that a, about a moral principle, or you read the Bible as an encyclopedia of truth, and you pick it up and you go to the very end, very, very helpful at the end, little little subject uh, index, and you say like, well, what does the Bible have to say about, here we go, marriage uh, and money, so that I can be a better person in those categories? The Bible will help you there, but if that's the only way you handle it, you will completely mishandle it, and you will miss the entire point. The Bible, the whole point of the Bible is about Jesus and what he's done to save you and adopt you into a loving relationship with God, which, listen to me, is everything you were made for. Everything you were made for. And so I don't care where you are in the Bible, Old Testament, some weird place in Leviticus, or like you're in the New Testament, one of Paul's letters, or, or Revelation, or like whatever. It's Jesus is the gravitational pull of it all. Jesus is the center. It's all building to and pointing to Jesus. So the question, wherever you are in the Bible is, okay, Jesus, how is this leading me to you and pointing to me to my human condition and my desperate need for you? Like that's what the Bible is. A story leading you to Jesus. Now, if that's true, the second question we have to ask is, well, then why should we read it? And I don't just assume that we all get that or we're all on the same page with that. So um, why should we read it? Second question. And there's, again, a whole lot we could say here, but, but just to give you a few bullet points. If you're a disciple in the room, the first and most obvious reason why we should read the Bible is, is really simple. It's because as disciples of Jesus... We want to have the same relationship to the Bible that Jesus had. And Jesus read, loved, and followed the Bible. Listen, this is, um, this is really important for you to understand this distinction. That as disciples and as a church, like as the crossing church, um, we don't follow Jesus because we follow the Bible. We follow the Bible because we follow Jesus. And Jesus followed the Bible. Does that make sense? We, we, don't, we don't follow Jesus because we follow the Bible. We follow the Bible because we follow Jesus, and Jesus followed the Bible. If you know anything about Jesus, you know that his whole life, everything he did, everything he believed, everything that poured out of him, it was rooted and flowed out of Scripture. And, and he, I mean, he read it, he memorized it, quoted it, prayed it, sang it, submitted to it, obeyed it, taught it, loved it, lived it. And so why should we read the Bible? Well, as disciples of Jesus, our end goal is to have the same relationship to the Bible that Jesus had. And Jesus read his Bible, y'all. Like, he read his Bible. The dude knew his Bible. He was rooted in it. And if we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what he did, we have to have that same relationship with the Scriptures. We have to have lives rooted in it. And the reason, by the way, that Jesus loved and followed the Bible is because Jesus knew that the Bible was telling the true story. Which brings us to the second reason why you should read it. it. The reality is, if your life is not rooted in the true story, it will be rooted in another story that doesn't line up with reality. And, and like, even if you're in this room and you're like, well, I don't buy that if that's what the Bible says, lay the Bible aside for a moment and let me just let the weight of science come to bear on you, okay? So um, all the recent research in neurobiology says that our brains are hardwired for story. You literally can't function without a story to live by. 
Bobette Buster, she's been known as the story guru. She's the one that like Pixar and Disney and all them bring in to help them figure out how to tell a good story. Here's what she says about us. She says, human beings are narrative animals. The only creature on planet Earth that tells stories to understand what kind of creature it is. We have an inerrant need to make sense of our experiences, to give them coherence. And so what do we do? We tell and believe stories. Like literally, the the neuroscience is telling you that you can't function without a story to live by. And so the question is not, am I believing a story? The question is, what story am I believing? And who told you that story? Who told you that story? Because every story has to come from another source, and the danger is that not all stories are true. And some of you right now are believing stories told to you by... Uh, progressive secularism, which is a way of describing our culture. You're believing stories that are told to you by um, uh, the religion of individualism, that truth is inside of you. You're believing a story that truth is inside of you and, and that your feelings and your desires and your experience are what is true. So you are what you feel and you are what you want, which allows you then to redraw the moral boundaries around you and kind of just live however you want. Do with your body whatever you want. Do with whoever, whatever. Like, because I am what I feel and I am what I experience and I am what I want. You're believing that story. This has made its way into the church. Like, this has made its way into my life. It's made its way into the church. I mean, so many in our culture are buying into the lie of cultural Christianity that you can say a prayer and like some idea of Jesus, and then just live however you want. And, and, and you can habitually live in ways that contradict how he's designed you and called you to live. And you're believing a story that's okay to do that. And my question for you is, who told you that story? Who told you it's okay to do that? Where'd you get that story? And Jesus, he just tells us, it's really clear, in John eight forty four that the devil has been a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. A lot of you are being lied to. You're getting played. You're getting played. And, And here's the deal. It's easy to fall for if your life is not rooted in the reality of the Scriptures. So many of you, myself, so many of us in our culture, uh, in our city, are believing stories and narrative scripts rooted in the trauma that you've experienced. Most often in childhood, bad things that happened to you, good things that did not happen for you. And so what happens is subconsciously you receive this message, this story about your identity, your self-worth, who you need to be, how you need to relate in order to be loved. And again, we have a real enemy who loves to play on our wounds, play on our psychological vulnerabilities, and come in and spin webs of lies and tell us a different story to lead us further and further away from the truth. All of that to say, here's the big takeaway, why I'm belaboring this. I think Pete Hughes says it best. The story you live in is the story you live out. So whatever story you believe will determine the kind of person you become, for better or for worse. It'll either form you more into a human or deform you into something that's less than human. It will either form you into love or it will deform you into hate and envy and bitterness and jealousy and strife. It will either 
cause you to line up with reality and flourish or be at odds with reality and wither. And so the point is, for us to become resilient disciples, we have to humble ourselves before the authority of God's Word and just let it have its way with us. It's really hard to do, especially in an anti-authoritarian culture, individualism. We have, this is the only way to do it, to humble yourself before the authority of God's Word and just let it bring reality to bear on your whole being. Hopes, dreams, desires, fears, all of that. In the words of 2 Timothy 3.16, we have to come before the Bible and just let it teach us. Can we just have the humility to be taught? Let it teach us, rebuke us, correct us, train us in righteousness. Let it mess with you. Let it answer your questions and question your answers. Like just let God's voice form you and shape you to live in alignment with reality so that you can flourish and not fall away. That's why you should read your Bible. It's the question we're answering, right? That's why you should read it. And it brings me to the final reason why you should read it, um, so that you can be formed. Like, we don't just read the Bible to read the Bible. Reading the Bible is a a, a means to an end. The end of being with Jesus, being formed to become like Jesus, so that we can then be transformed enough to do what Jesus did. That's why you read your Bible, to, to spend time with Jesus and to, to hear his voice and then surrender to him and let his spirit and his word form and shape you from the inside out so that, so that you can then become who you're designed to be. You can flourish as the man or woman God created you to be. You read it for formation. You read it to be with Jesus. You read it to be changed by Jesus. It's the reason why you should read your Bible. All that to say, okay, coming in for a landing here, If we understand what the Bible is, a unified story leading us to Jesus, and we understand why it's essential for our whole being to be rooted in that story, the next question we have to ask then is, okay, how do I read it? And again, we could spend a ton of time here, ton of time here, but I think, I don't want to overcomplicate this. It's really simple, I think. So I just want to give you a few practical steps, okay, on how to read the Bible, and you can practice this on your own today, tomorrow, and every day for the rest of your life. Uh, Step number one for how do I read the Bible just read it. <laughs> that's, that's it. Just read it. Um, that's, that's, that's step number one. You just got to read it. You don't overthink it. You just, just bring, okay, just bring the normal conventions for reading that you use every time you like read a text or an article or like a novel. Just bring that to the Bible and you'll be fine. For the most part, you'll be fine. Um, David Helm says it really well in his little book on how to read the Bible. Kind of a lengthy quote but I want to share it. He says, at one level, if you know how to read, you know how to read the Bible. The Bible is not a magical book or a book that uses language in a completely different way from all other books in the world. All the normal methods we use for reading things every day are the same methods we use for reading the Bible, noticing the context of what we're reading. So you do all this naturally, observing the words and sentences and what they're saying and come to a conclusion about the overall meaning and then consider what implications it might have for our lives. We do this naturally and without even thinking about it. When we read a newspaper article, a blog, uh, you know, a novel, a business report. Sometimes, however, we subconsciously leave these basic reading principles behind when we come to the Bible, perhaps out of reverence or because we think that the Bible is in a different category of literature and not subject to the normal conventions of reading. What he's saying is you, 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 you read the Bible like you would anything else. It's literature. So read it literarily, like pay attention, is this poetry or is this 
a story or is this a letter that was written to someone? I mean, just that's just like the common like reading conventions that you already have within you. You don't even need any help with that. So just like just pay attention like to the context, to the genre, and read it like you would any other book, which means read books all the way through. If you're watching a book, or watch sorry, you don't watch a book. If you're watching a movie or reading a novel, you don't start in the middle because then you don't have any idea what's going on. So if you want to read Romans, start at the beginning of Romans. It's not, it's not a really helpful practice to like pick a random nugget of Scripture from a different book of the Bible every day and read it. I think God will speak to you through that, and it's better than nothing. But it's kind of like, it's just, it's just nuggets, and you need a more well-balanced thing going on there. So read through, read through books, whole books at a time. You can do that in one whole sitting, or you can do that by reading just a little bit each day. Which brings me to my next step here on how to read the Bible. Just read it, and then read it daily. Um, when Jesus was in the wilderness, he fought and beat the devil. How? Through scripture. Yeah. He had scripture hidden in his heart and he quoted scripture back to the devil. And here's one of the things he said to the devil. He said, listen, dude, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is every word that comes from the mouth of God codified for us in this canon of scripture given to us. And Jesus is saying like, this is your daily bread. Don't fast from this. Eat this every day. If you want to survive in the wilderness, if you want to be the tree in the desert that flourishes, this is your daily bread. Eat this every single day, even if it's just a little bit at a time. That's okay. Even if it's just a little bit at a time, eat it every day. Step number three, so just read it. Read it daily and read it with Jesus. Don't make this an intellectual exercise or just something you're just trying to get through, but like, Make this whole experience a conversation with Jesus. Remember, that's the whole point of the Bible anyway. So before I read, I, I usually say something like, okay, Lord, I'm here, and I'm going you know, to try to hear you today, speak to me, so would you open my eyes to the text and help me hear your voice? And then I'm just going to read it, and like whatever stands out to me, I'm going to talk to Jesus about that. Like, okay, well, what does this mean? And are you trying to get my attention here? Is there, is there anything that you want to say to me? And then I just spend some time listening. Remember, this whole thing is about relationship. It's all about relationship. God just wants to be with you. He's glad to be with you, and he wants you to be with him. So don't read it without him. Don't read it without him. Read it with him. Finally, how do we read the Bible? Step number four, just read it. Read it daily. Read it with Jesus. Meditate on it. Go back to Psalm 1 real quick. Psalm 1 verse 2, he says this, Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Thomas Watson was a 17th century Puritan pastor. He wrote a treatise on meditation that was titled The Christian on the Mount. And here's what he says about meditation. Powerful. A Christian without meditation is like a soldier without arms or a workman without tools. Without meditation, the truths of God will not stay with us. The heart is hard and the memory is slippery. And without meditation, all is lost. If you want to be rooted in Scripture, he's saying you've got to meditate on it. So here's what you've got to realize. You, you have to come to the Bible on its terms. This is Jewish meditation literature. That's what it is. Which means it's written, it's, it's written to be read over and over. It's not like this is a movie where it's like, well, I saw that movie, so I don't need to watch it again. Or I read that book, so I'll just shelf it. This is meant to be read over and over and over the rest of your life and read it slowly. 
Read it slowly. Um, this word meditate in Psalm 1, you see it all over the Bible. It's literally, the, it's the same word for an animal that growls over its, over its prey and chews and gnaws on a bone. And so what the psalmist is saying is, if you want to be rooted in Scripture, you've got to take God's word and slow down enough to chew on it. Sometimes my kids eat so fast, I'm like, chew your food, dude. Like, you don't even take it in the nutrients. Chew it. So you've got to slow down and you've got to chew on it and take in all the nutrients and enjoy the presence of God and just allow him to nourish your soul. And this, this meditative style of reading has become known as Lectio Divina in church history, which is Latin for spiritual reading. And I just want to show you how to do it real quick, okay? And you can practice this on your own this week. If you've been in a DNA, by the way, you've already been practicing this. So here's how you meditate on Scripture. Number one, you just start in silent prayer. You know, you just go somewhere quiet if you can. I try to get up early in the morning before my kids, but they're crazy. So no matter what time they go to bed, they still get up at 545. Am I right? And then they're like interrupting me like crazy. Um, so, but you just try to find a quiet place if you can. At the very least, try to quiet your inner being. Try to quiet your mind and your body. You put your phone away and then you just breathe. Just breathe. It's just, just, we're, we're praying silently. And just acknowledge, man, I'm in the presence of God. He woke me up this morning. He's here. He's called this meeting. He wants to be with me. So God, just ask him, like, I'm going to open myself up to your presence. Would you come and would you just be with me and just speak to me through your word? It's just that simple. You just start in silent prayer. And then you read slowly, step number two, and look for what shimmers. It's, it's really easy. It's not rocket science. It's, it's just relationship. You just look for where is God speaking to me? Where is he nudging me? Where is he getting my attention? And maybe it's jumping off the page because you're like, that's a weird word. I've never even heard that word before. You know, I, I, or maybe it's, maybe it's causing an emotional reaction in you. But you just, you just notice, like you just keep reading until something, something connects with you. A word, a phrase, or an image grabs your attention. And when something resonates with you, step number three, just chew on it for a minute. Again, really simple, just chew on it. Meditate on it. Um, what does this mean? What is, is this for me? Uh, you don't have to like parse it in its original language or go find a commentary unless that's your thing. It's really just, you just sit there with it. Lord, what are you saying here? Like, are you trying to get my attention? Uh, are you stirring something in me? Is there anything you want me to hear through this word? And then step number four, we can put step number three on the screen. There you go, meditate on it. Then number four, um, just whatever that is, just make that a conversation between you and God. Remember, it's not rocket science, it's relationship. It's not super technical, guys. It's actually just reading. It's not, you, you can lay down all the like mystical crazy things that, like, the, that make this intimidating and it's just reading with God and making it a conversation with God. It's so beautiful how simple it is. And so you just pray his word back to him, make this a conversation with him, and, and, and then see where it goes. Listen, I can't program this for you because it's a relationship. So you just have to see where it goes. You could be there for three minutes or 30 minutes, and, and it could turn into worship. You, you might praise him. You might start asking him for things. You might repent. You might vent. Um, you know, just, just whatever it is, just let God meet you in that place wherever you are. And then finally, step number five, um, if you want to meditate on Scripture, is just before you close your Bible and you go throughout your day, just take one final moment to sit with God in his word and thank him. Thank you for being with, here with me today. And after you sit there for a moment, just savoring the moment, just for one more moment with him, maybe 30 more seconds of just savoring that moment with him before you have to jump in the shower or hit the road or whatever you got to do, 
just expressing gratitude to him, just ask him silently, would you go with me throughout the day? Help me not to move away from you today. Help me to go with you and be rooted in your word today. And then go throughout your day. And the truth is, the more you meditate, the more scripture will become a path in your mind and in your heart. And your soul will be rooted in a better story. And you will be like a tree planted by streams of water. You will flourish. And we desperately need more trees in our city. Desperately need more trees in our city. Men, women, children who are rooted in the soil of the scriptures, bearing the fruit of the kingdom of God, bringing the reality of the kingdom of God into this space so that this city over time looks a little bit less like hell and feels a little bit more like heaven. We, we desperately need more trees in our city. And so the call, wherever you are this morning, is simply to be a man or woman of the word. To read the Bible daily and let it read you. To follow Jesus as you follow the Bible. And if you're in this room and you're, and, and you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you have questions about this, maybe you're wrestling with this, maybe you have your doubts. Listen, here's the good news that the biblical story is trying to tell you. God is not just all talk. You know, a lot of people promise things to you and they break their promises. A lot of people say they love you and care about you and their, their, their lives don't match up with what they say. Raise your hand if that's ever happened to you. That's called a wound, right? That hurts. God is not like that. We read in John 1 that the word became flesh and dwelled among us. So God takes all his promises of love and redemption, everything he says he's going to do, and he, in Jesus, he literally wraps it in flesh and blood and bone, and Jesus comes and he lives out, quite literally fleshes out the story of God's love for you and proves it definitively once and for all in the context of human history on a real cross, and three days later he rose from the dead to prove everything God says in his word is true. So if that's you this morning and you're wrestling with that, the, the call is just... Man, trust in this good news story. It's, it's the redemptive ending you long for in your story. Like we all long for the Disney ending. We want our stories to end well. We want hope and redemption. This is it. It's Jesus. And, and Jesus has come to do what you could never do, to, to pay for your sins and forgive you and bring you into relationship with God. And if you're in here this morning, man, and you want to talk more about that, you want to wrestle with that, I mean, not literally wrestle. I mean, I guess if you want to, we can. Um, but if you want to talk more about that, you, you know, you, you want to pray through that. If you've made that decision this morning, like I'm here, um, Jared's here, uh, we, we, you know, we would love to meet you in that place and just talk with you. Robert's here, like, man, we would love, we would love to do that. Just give us that chance. And what I want to do right now as the band is here is I just want to pray this into us, this, this word. And so would you join me? Let's just go to the Father and let's pray together. Father, I ask that of all the things I've said, the gospel would be the thing that really just sticks in us and motivates change in our lives. Like, I pray that you'd give us a new love and devotion for your word. I just pray that, man, I, you know, Psalm 119 says your word is it's like worth more than all the gold in the universe. Man, I don't even know if I believe that. Forgive me, Lord. I, I just pray that, um, that my life would be so grounded in the reality of Scripture and your voice that I learn to think with you, feel with you, like feel what you're feeling, think what you're thinking, speak your words, Man, God, what would happen in our city if, 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 our, if all of us as a people were living that way? Lives rooted in Scripture. I would have to think that revival would happen. I, would, I have to think that like the kingdom of God would flourish. I, I have to think that so many people would come to faith. I just pray, God, that you would do this.
And do it for your glory, not for ours. Do it because this is about, this is about what you've promised to do. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.